welcome back to Amerisogyny. I'm your host, Hannah Blue. You're listening to episode 38, Mama's Baby. Today, I bring you stories of maternal love gone too far and treachery bred by the sons of mothers who gave them too much or far too little in life. In some stories, only the children are to blame for their actions. In all, there is no manual on how to be a parent. The relationship between a parent and child is a delicate balance. Too much love leads to overindulgence and entitlement. And too little love can lead to resentment and displaced anger. So what to do? How do you find the delicate balance of raising a mentally healthy child? As my nephew Josh says, I'm doing the best I can. Buckle your seatbelts for stories on monster moms on our first stop, the USA. The men I'm going to talk about are scary. I won't even say they're human. Is it fair to blame their mothers? Some yes, some no. Trash women are everywhere. They become mothers and mothers-in-law. And some become killers. We've arrived in California. This woman is called the worst mother-in-law in California. What a title. 1959 was the year Elizabeth Ann Duncan was tried for the murder of her daughter-in-law. I guess it's never too late to murder. Duncan was 58 when she carried out her scheme to end not one life, but two. You have to be a special kind of sick to kill a pregnant woman. Prosecutors called Duncan obsessed, overbearing, terrifying, perverse. And she absolutely hated her daughter-in-law. She tried to break up her son's marriage by posing as her daughter-in-law at an annulment hearing. And get this, she paid a man she didn't even know to pose as her son. You know, some men, especially in these times, believe it's a flex to be called a mama's boy. I don't, and here's why. Men who don't check their toxic mothers have deep-rooted issues. And it's best to stay away from them. Perfect example, her son, Frank Patrick Duncan, lost a wife and an unborn baby. Duncan called him Mama's Little Boy. Well, what did Mama's Little Boy do when Duncan was arrested for killing his wife? Instead of being angry at his mother for killing his family, he defended her at her trial. How's that for creepy? Ma Duncan was a mess. It's rumored she married between 10 to 20 times. She even lied to some of the men so that they'd marry her. She committed bigamy, stole identities, and wrote bad checks. And the cherry on the sundae? She was a madam. That's right. She was hit with 30 days in jail for running a brothel. She lived with Frank for a brief period before he got fed up and kicked her out. She tried to end her life with sleeping pills. Canadian Olga Krupsik was hired as her nurse. Frank was smitten and appeared to fall in love with Olga. But as Ma Duncan got better... Her mental health declined because she was pissed. 
This was a woman who was perversely obsessed with her son. Possessive is an understatement. She didn't want her mama's little boy, as she called him, loving anyone more than her. Frank was a weak man. After marrying Olga in 1958, his mother threw tantrums and crying spells. She begged him to come home and live with her. Frank testified, I felt like a yo-yo bouncing back and forth between both women. He said to keep things amicable, he visited his wife at her apartment every night, but went home to sleep at the apartment he shared with his mother. Olga, you should have sent him back to the streets. Well, she didn't and soon became pregnant. Here's how he failed Olga as a husband, and honestly, I don't feel sorry for him. His sneaky mother would call his pregnant wife and threaten her. But when Olga told him about the threats, he didn't believe her. He believed his lying pimp mother over his wife. Even worse, when his mother bought a gun and threatened to kill herself, he simply took the gun. You know, a scene from the K2 just popped in my head. When K2 was going to kill Choi Yu-jin, and Anna came out of that room and said, shoot her, shoot her. That's what Olga should have been saying. And let me just say this to the writers of K2. Let me tell you, Choi Yujin and K2 should have hooked up and got married. They had way more chemistry than he and Anna, but I digress. Let's get back to this crazy mother-in-law and poor Olga. I like keeping episodes with heavy subject matter, light and entertaining folks. You'll get used to my dark humor. Olga was scared for herself and her baby, and she had good reason to be. She confided in friends and family about what she was going through, and Frank didn't protect her. He was too busy in his mammy's decrepit bosom. Here's how nasty and evil Ma Duncan was. When threats didn't make Olga leave, Ma Duncan began looking for a hitman. She offered $1,500 for someone to throw acid in Olga's face and push her off a cliff. When the waitress told Frank, a lawyer, mind you, instead of going to the police, he went to his lying mother, who denied it. Ma Duncan finally got what she wanted. She hired two men, Luis Moya and Augustine Baldonado, for $3,000 to end Olga's life. To get the job done, she even stole $200 from Frank and pawned some jewelry for $175. This evil trick even kept a few dollars for herself. It all went down on November 18, 1958. Moya and Baldonado lured Olga from her apartment by lying to her, saying her husband was drunk in the back seat. Olga must have really loved him because he could have been gagging on strychnine. I wouldn't have moved a muscle. Once she realized it was a trap, she tried to fight back, but to no avail. They pistol whipped her so hard, they broke the gun. Olga was beaten and choked before being dumped into a shallow grave at a construction site. It's unknown whether she was dead or alive when she was buried. I don't even want to think about this poor lady suffocating to death. The two clowns were arrested soon on different charges. And Ma Duncan, like the cornered animal she was, 
knew the walls were closing in. She was scared they'd snitch on her, so she lied and said they had blackmailed her about the fake annulment she set in motion. Now, her idiotic son should have known by now his mother was trash. But what did his dumbass do? He tried to get the men into more trouble. Not his mama. Police were smarter than Frank. Hallelujah. They got suspicious and turned the heat up on the killers who ratted Ma Duncan out faster than Tupac's killer was arrested. The fools admitted later, had they known Olga was pregnant, they wouldn't have killed her. But it was too little, too late. Now they didn't have the internet back then, just the newspapers. But people packed that courtroom like sardines. Frank Duncan and S. Ward Sullivan defended Ma Duncan. Ma Duncan raised a bizarre man. He didn't seem crushed by the death of Olga. He claimed he had a loving and affectionate relationship with Olga, yet admitted he hadn't spoken to her 10 days prior to her disappearance. When asked if his mother tried to break up his marriage, he said, let's just say she hindered its development. The prosecution had 44 witnesses to testify against Ma Duncan. And she still lied almost better than Trump, claiming she had nothing to do with the murder. Four weeks after the trial, she was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to execution. Moya and Baldonado were also sentenced to death. They tried to pull a prison break, beat up two guards and held them hostage. But police used tear gas and said, not today, Satan. It was August 8th. 1962, when they marched Ma Duncan into the gas chamber where she belonged. She asked to be sedated and was informed, no, not today, Satan, indeed, before she died and went to hell. Her baby boy was on her mind. Before the gas finally killed her, she asked, where's Frank? I'm innocent. But weak Frank didn't attend. He tried to get her execution delayed. Ma Duncan didn't die with her accomplices. She died alone, as she deserved. The two idiots appeared cheerful, talking and laughing, as they rode a hot air balloon of poison gas to the gates of hell. Use your imagination, folks. Frank Duncan actually remarried to an attorney. Can you believe it? But got divorced years later. No shock here. After Mommy Dreadful died, he moved to L.A. to practice law and was never heard from again. Ladies, this is your cue to avoid men like Frank Duncan, no matter what. Ma Duncan's craziness didn't die with her. Another murder of a daughter-in-law shocked the neighborhood in 2009. Sadly, another baby was involved. Little 18-month-old Carson watched his mother die at his grandmother's hand. Our next stop, Snellville, Georgia. 25-year-old Heather Strube and her husband, Stephen, were getting a divorce. They shared custody of their baby Carson. On April 26, 2009, they met at a parking lot to exchange the baby. It was a routine Heather and Stephen knew all too well. So did Stephen's mother. Witnesses watched Stephen drive away with the baby. What happened after he left? was bone-chilling. Someone approached Heather and started an argument. 
Then, without warning, the person shot Heather in the head. The shooter, caught on camera, simply walked to a vehicle and drove away. Witnesses said they thought the person wore a wig and a fake mustache. The killing was done so smoothly, police suspected it had been planned. They focused on suspects who knew the parents exchanged their baby. They also questioned Stephen, who had been arrested for burglary and was on probation. Stephen was very nervous around the investigators, but he had an alibi. He said after leaving Heather, he went to a car wash and then to see his girlfriend. Women don't mind dating criminals, huh? Even with the alibi, police still suspected him. A trucker broke the case wide open. He said he saw someone near a white pickup truck with special detailing spying the shopping center with a camera or binoculars. The truck in question belonged to Heather's mother-in-law, Joanna Hayes. Now Hayes was smarter than Ma Duncan. When questioned by police, she produced a receipt from a snack bar at a mall in another county. Now that worked for Hayes for a while. Police kept digging and discovered Hayes wanted to remain in her grandson's life. But the divorce could interfere with that. Which doesn't make sense because if the father shared custody with the mother or even had visitation rights, Hayes would still be able to see the baby. Smells like BS to me. On May 5, 2009, Stephen was shown a tape of the suspect who shot Heather. Stephen recognized the person and said it was his mother. So, Stephen worked with the police to set up his mother. He called her and said, It looks just like you. Walks like you. Hayes asked her son if he'd said this to the police, and he said yes. So she knew she'd be questioned, and she was, on May 6th. She channeled the depraved soul of Ma Duncan and denied any involvement in Heather's death and then strolled out. Former assistant DA Krista Kirk said, for lack of a better phrase, she said bring it. How cocky. Nearly eight months after the crime, Hayes was arrested and charged with Heather's murder in December 2009. The trial began on May 4, 2011, and prosecutors were worried the case was circumstantial. They had no wig, no murder weapon. On top of that, several witnesses said they saw a man, not a woman, pull the trigger. The smoking gun, so to speak. Stephen identified his mother in the video. The receipt she was so proud of, hmm, that only shows she would have had enough time to commit the murder and travel to the fast food joint. The motive, baby Carson. Prosecutors said she wanted the baby on her terms. On May 27, 2011, a jury convicted Hayes of murder. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 30 years. This story aired on Killer Motive on the Oxygen Channel. Yeah, Trash mothers do exist. There was absolutely no reason for this woman to kill this young mother. She didn't care if her son Stephen lost her, nor did she care if her grandson lost his mother. Before we get into the men, I have two more crazy mother-in-laws to tell you about. 
Our next stop, India. A mother-in-law shot her daughter-in-law because the daughter-in-law wasn't interested in doing chores. What's even worse, her husband and son conspired to commit murder. Yikes. Rough family. The mother-in-law, Radhika, her husband, Narendra, and her son, Amit, were all arrested. Now, they tried to pass the crime off as robbery and murder, but police weren't buying it. The victim's name was Kamal, and the mother-in-law confessed she killed her in her sleep. Radhika told police Kamal was not interested in doing household chores, and this upset her son. And that was all it took for the three to conspire to kill this woman. Radhika shot Kamal while Amit and his father were out of the house. She ransacked the house and then called two grocery shop owners and told them that robbers had killed Kamal and looted valuables. This 24-year-old woman lost her life over chores. What a scary family. Our next stop, the UK. Like I said, you're never too old to commit murder. A 70-year-old woman, Bechan Othwal, killed her daughter-in-law in what was called an honor killing. The daughter-in-law, Sergit Carr Othwal, was 27, and she had an affair. Now, a body has never been found, but police believe she was strangled and then dumped in a river in December of 1998. And how did the mother-in-law get caught? She bragged that she got a relative to kill her daughter-in-law. Now, this should come as no surprise to you. The husband was in on the plan to kill his wife. It took years to bring these people to justice. I'm not going to judge the victim, Sergeant, and I'll tell you why. She kept diaries and said she endured 10 years of an unhappy arranged marriage, living with her husband and mother-in-law. Yes, she had an affair and she wanted a divorce. Here's her story. She suffered a miscarriage three months after the wedding. Her husband, Athwal, accused her of having an abortion and branded her a murderer. In 1991, she gave birth to a daughter, but the mother-in-law taught the child to call her mommy. I don't advocate for cheating, but think of the hell this woman went through. Now, if people want to get into arranged marriages, that's fine with me but many of them are unhappy and in tragedy like this one. I'm not in favor of them. By December of 1998, Sergit was fed up and tried to leave, but the mother-in-law pressured her to go on a trip to India, and she reluctantly agreed it would be her last decision. Another daughter-in-law confessed she'd been told they were planning to kill Sergit in India, and when Sergit didn't return, she threatened to go to the police, but the husband told her, if you say anything, you'll go down with us. Athwal and her son told police Sergit had run away. They forged letters to interfere with the investigation, but Sergit never touched her bank account or used her credit cards. The husband took out life insurance before Sergit disappeared, but canceled it after the company said they weren't going to pay up unless a body was found. He had the nerve to divorce Sajid in 2001 and remarry. 
and in 2004, he and his mother faked Surjit's name to transfer ownership of the family house out of her name. And that is when the other daughter-in-law ratted them out. In 2007, 86-year-old Bachan Kar Athwal was released from jail. Athwal's eyes are cold, soulless. She should have died in jail. Now that's the women. Let's get on to the men. Now, if you're a horror fan like me, two classic scenes of all time, the shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and the scene in The Silence of the Lambs where the serial killer makes a suit out of skin. But did you know these stories were based on one man? He was a serial killer who lived in Plainville, Wisconsin, and skinned and dismembered his victims. What did he do with the skin? He made a bodysuit, a chair, and more disgusting things. When a woman went missing in November of 1957, police entered the house of Ed Gein and found her, decapitated and hanging from her ankles. They also found skulls, human organs, and disgusting pieces of furniture like lampshades made of human faces and chairs upholstered with human skin. Ed told police he wanted to create a skin suit to resurrect his dead mother. How's that for a mama's boy? Edward Gein was born on August 27, 1906. His mother was depicted as religious and domineering. She raised Ed and his brother Henry to believe that the world was full of evil, that women were vessels of sin. Oh boy. Ed had poor social skills and was often bullied for having a lazy eye and a speech impediment. And while Ed adored his mother, his brother, not so much. It's rumored that Ed murdered his brother to be closer to his mother. But after one year, Augusta died in 1945. For the women of Plainfield, Wisconsin, the horror had just begun. It's easy to see how Gein inspired Alfred Hitchcock to create Norman Bates. After his mother's death, Gein boarded up the rooms his mother used and moved into a small bedroom. He learned about Nazi medical experiments, studied human anatomy, and watched porn. He also read horror novels, and thank God he never tried to date any real-life women. He killed for a solid 10 years, undetected, until Bernice Worden, a local hardware store owner, vanished. All police found were bloodstains. Her last customer was Ed Gein. He bought antifreeze. When police visited his home, not only did they find Bernice, they also found countless bones, whole and fragmented, skulls impaled on his bedpost, and bowls and kitchen utensils made from skulls. Police found chairs covered in human skin, a trash basket made of skin, leggings made from skin, and masks made from faces. Also, a belt made of nipples, a pair of lips being used as a window shade drawstring, and a corset made of a female torso. 
these were all made in human skin. Police also found body parts, fingernails, four noses, and the genitals of nine different women. Gein was creepy and terrifying. He admitted to police he collected most of the remains from three local graveyards. He also told police he was looking for bodies that he thought looked like his mother. And he wanted to create a woman's suit so that he could become his mother and crawl into her skin. My God. In 1957, Gein was found not guilty by reasons of insanity and sent to the Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. His farmhouse burned to the ground, mysteriously. No one knows how many people Ed Gein killed. He only admitted to killing Bernice Worden and another woman, Mary Hogan. As for the other bodies, he claimed he got those from robbing graves. So now you know. The inspiration behind Norman Bates, Leatherface of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill, were all inspired by this monster, Ed Gein. Now, Gein was an older man. What's scary to me is the ones who commit matricide that are young. Our next stop, North Carolina. When you think of the suburbs of Raleigh, you don't think murder. But this teen changed the game. 18-year-old Oliver Machada beheaded his mother and told police he killed her because he felt like it. Machada admitted he stabbed her like eight times and left the knife in her mouth. His words, not mine. Brian Cox from ICE says the suspect was from Honduras and was in the country illegally. Machada called 911 to say he had killed his mother. The boy was arrested and the body of his decapitated mother was found inside. Police also found Oliver's medicine which he used to treat psychosis and schizophrenia. Police found his mother's head lying in the front yard about five feet from the porch. A neighbor, Randy Mullins, said, I couldn't believe it. He had lived in the neighborhood for 25 years. He went on to say, You can't believe somebody would do that. You hear about that, but it never happens across the street from you. According to Mullins, Mother and son seem friendly. Well, it's like I say, you never know what goes on behind closed doors. Our next stop, Florida. A 13-year-old boy was charged with second-degree murder after stabbing his 39-year-old mother, Irina Garcia, to death. The boy had no prior criminal record, and at the time, police had no motive as to why he killed his mother. He did call 911 and confess. A neighbor, Maria Nella LaFlori, said, This is a very calm area. This is the first time I've seen something like this happening. This is the first time I've seen this many police around. Murder can happen anywhere. On July 19, 2022, NYC prep student Doug Solomon beat his 65-year-old mother, Diane Gallagher, to death with a table lamp. He then jumped out of their 16-story New York City luxury apartment building and died. His actions stunned everyone who knew him. Doug had never been abused, did not have psychosis, and no criminal record. 
His father is former Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Charles Solomon. He wasn't close to his dad, but he was close to his mother. Doug entered Rhodes College in the fall of 2014, but by the end of his first year, he was back at home. We don't know if he dropped out or flunked out, but he began drinking and smoking weed while he was away at college. His father told police his son had a temper and could get frustrated when he didn't get his way. At the time of the murder-suicide, he had been living at home for eight years, and there's no history he even held a job. He lived a charmed life, full of opportunities and advantages. It could have been a case of overindulgence. Research says overindulgence sets kids up for resentment and difficulties later in life. The consequences of overindulgence are center of the universe syndrome, disrespectful attitude, helplessness, confusing wants and needs, an overblown sense of entitlement, irresponsibility, ungratefulness, poor self-control, relationship problems, personal goals distortion. And what does this mean? According to research, the more a person is overindulged as a child, the more likely it is that their personal life goals will be externally motivated, fame, fortune, and vanity, as opposed to internal aspirations like developing character and cultivating meaningful relationships. We're pulling out of New York and going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now this story blew my mind. A 10-year-old boy shot his mother to death. He was 10 at the time. Quiana Mann was 44 years old when she was allegedly shot by her son in the eye on November 21st, 2022. Her son tried to hide the weapon before he told his sister their mother was dead and the sister called 911. The boy told police he was angry at his mom for waking him up 30 minutes early and not letting him purchase a headset from Amazon. To me, she was being a mother. She can wake him up at any time to do chores, and he was not entitled to have a headset. Police say the child logged into his dead mother's Amazon account to purchase the headset the next day. He showed no remorse. At first, the boy said he accidentally shot his mother, but then told an aunt he had been aiming the gun at his mother. That's when family members contacted the police and he was taken into custody. The child is reported to have rage issues. And it's also reported when he was four years old, he swung a puppy by the tail until the dog whined in pain. In addition, he set fire in the family home by inflating a balloon with combustible liquid and igniting it. The child's grandmother claimed he heard voices, and the boy allegedly received a diagnosis from a therapist, which caused the mom to place cameras around the house, but they were unplugged before the shooting. The boy, who is now 11, faces charges of first-degree reckless homicide, and if he's found guilty, he could spend up to 60 years in prison. Our next stop, China. Wu Xiaoyu, a former Peking University student, was sentenced to death for killing his mother. 
Wu Xiaoyu was convicted of intentional homicide, fraud, and illegal identity card purchase. He was given the death penalty and a fine that adds up to 15,800 U.S. dollars. According to Wu, after his father died of illness, he thought the life of his mother was meaningless, so he prepared to kill her in early 2015. He even bought the tools online. On July 10th, he repeatedly hit his mother in the head and the face with a dumbbell, killing her. His mother was 48 years old. He borrowed money from friends and relatives and lied to them, saying his mother would travel with him overseas. But he bought more than 10 ID cards with the money to hide his identity and avoid arrest. The court said Wu's behavior constituted the crime of intentional homicide as he planned to kill his mother for a long time with extremely vicious purpose and cruel means. Wu was a model student at a prestigious school Peking University. That didn't stop him from being a murderer. This goes to show being an elite student and living in another country means nothing. A murderer is a murderer anywhere you go. Our next stop, Germany. The son is called Ingo P. He bludgeoned his 66-year-old mother to death with a hammer as she lay in bed and then he killed his father. This happened in December of 2017. Now, the wife wasn't in the house when he committed the murders, but she was charged right along with him because she urged him to kill his parents to have him to herself. The couple hid the bodies behind a wall in the house. They then reported his parents missing and had the nerve to ask the public for donations to search for them. And what did they do after he killed his parents? They got married. How romantic. They did all that. And they're still not going to be together. Rightfully so. If you thought killing a woman over household chores was strange, have I got a story for you. Our next stop, Italy. A man beat his mother to death over a glass of water. Sicko Siccarelli was 28 years old at the time, and he flew into a rage when his mother refused to give him a glass of water. And he tried to run, but police caught him, and he confessed to killing his mother, Anna, who was 52, saying he had kicked and beaten his mother to death over water. Crazy as hell. We're not leaving Italy just yet. Now, even Al Capone didn't go to prison for this. This next story is a trip. Italian gangster Francesco Barone killed his mother in revenge for having an affair with a rival mafia boss, Domenico Cassiola. Cassiola went missing around the time Francesca Bellico was murdered in August of 2013. Her body was never found. Not even the godfather did that. Our next stop. South Korea. He is known as the Korean Zodiac Killer. Lee Chun Jae killed 16 people. Between 1986 and 1991, he killed 10 people. These are called the Hwaseon murders. Lee Chun Jae was born on January 31st, 1963. 
He graduated from high school in February 1983 and joined the Korean Army as a tank pilot. He was discharged from the Army on January 23, 1986. While in his 20s, Lee Chun-jae committed a series of rapes and murders. He used pantyhose or socks of the victims to strangle them to death. It took 30 years to solve the case. 21,000 suspects were investigated. The age of the victims didn't matter to him. He killed a woman as old as 71 and murdered girls as young as 14. So how did he get caught? Two years after the Wasion murders, his wife left him. On January 13, 1994, he invited his sister-in-law over and drugged her. He then raped and killed her. Here's how cold he was. He went to his father-in-law and offered to help him find his daughter. After her body was found, Lee got himself arrested because he kept asking, how long is the sentence for rape and murder? He was convicted and sentenced to death in May, but in 1995, his sentence was reduced to life. The 10 women he raped and murdered never received justice. He was declared the killer on September 18, 2019, but due to the statute of limitations, he was not charged for his crimes. Here's what's interesting about Lee Chun Jae. He developed a hatred for his mother, saying she neglected him, and this led him to kill women when he grew up. And that was his motive, folks. He hated women and wanted to satisfy his sick sexual needs. Still in South Korea, here's another man who hated women and rich people, Yu Young Chol. He's known as South Korea's notorious raincoat killer. Yu Young Chol was born on April 18, 1970. He grew up poor in Gocheng County, a rural part of South Korea. According to prosecutors, Yu's disappointing family and economic environment transformed into hostility against the wretch. In 2000, he was convicted of raping a 15-year-old girl and sent to prison. While in prison, he was inspired by another Korean serial killer, Jung Do Young, who had targeted rich people. When Yoo Young Chol was later caught and asked why he committed the murders, he said, women should not be sluts and the rich should know what they have done. In an upscale neighborhood in Seoul, he attacked and killed an elderly couple, a university professor, and his 68-year-old wife. He beat them to death with a hammer. And Yu's killing of rich people didn't stop there. Here's what surprised police. Although he killed wealthy people, he didn't rob them. Meanwhile, Yu shifted his focus. After being left and divorced by his wife, he developed a deep hatred of women. So he started killing sex workers. It's reported the women he killed reminded him of his wife. He started calling sex workers from Seoul massage parlors to his apartment. And once you got the women inside of his apartment, he had sex with them and beat them to death with a sledgehammer he had custom made to fit his grip. After mutilating their bodies, you used axes, knives, and scissors 
to cut the victims into 16 to 18 pieces. He tore off their fingertips so they couldn't be identified and stuffed their remains in garbage bags, which he buried on a mountain. He didn't take women that were too tall or overweight because he needed to transport them easily in garbage bags. According to you, he sometimes even ate parts of his victims, saying he believed it would cleanse his spirit. Yu was also a talented artist. Police found drawings he did, and one of them depicted Yu with the devil. So how did he get caught? He used one of the victim's phone to call a massage parlor to get another girl. And the owner recognized the number as belonging to one of his missing girls and called the police. Police took Yu into custody, but he faked having a seizure and escaped for 12 hours. That's right. He walked out of the police station barefoot. After the second arrest, he confessed to all of the crimes. He also took police to where he buried the bodies. And he showed no remorse, no emotion, as the police dug up the missing girls. You said, the media keeps saying that I've murdered so many people. But to me, it was only a mere start. I had no intention of stopping. What's scary to me, he was a father. He had no remorse for the women he killed, but in a letter to police, he said he felt the most fear when his son called him while he was mutilating a body. He said, The scariest moment was not when a decapitated head fell off from a hanger or when a headless body came running to me. It was when my son called to ask if I still have a cold. Can you imagine a headless body running to you? This man had no fear of that. In 2004, he was sentenced to death, but South Korea has a hold on executions, so he's still serving time at the Seoul Detention Center. That's one cold bastard. Now you can watch his story on Netflix in a documentary called The Raincoat Killer, Chasing a Predator in Korea. We're almost at the end, folks. Thanks for hanging in there. Our last stop, Japan. A 17-year-old boy beheaded his mother and took her head in a bag to an internet cafe to watch a DVD before he turned himself in. The teen spent about two hours at the cafe with his mother's head and watched a DVD of a hip-hop group. Then he took a taxi to the police station. Can you imagine the look on those officers' faces? when they opened his bag and saw a severed human head. Police found her beheaded body in the apartment where he lived with his mother. The boy told police he had killed his mother while she was sleeping. Like I said, evil lives everywhere. Still in Japan, a 49-year-old man, Masaki Sato, killed his 75-year-old mother by stabbing her in the neck with a knife. At the time, police say they were given no motive for stabbing his mother. But is there ever an excuse to kill your own mother? Senseless. Our last killer of the day, Yukio Yamaji. He was just 16 years old when he beat his mother to death with a baseball bat. After three years, he was released from a juvenile detention school. But he never should have been. When asked why he killed his mother, he said, 
She did not tell me what she would use her borrowed money for, and she complained about my father. While incarcerated, psychological tests showed that he had a developmental disorder, which prevented him from forming lasting relationships. Shortly before his release, he told his lawyer he was sorry for killing his mother, and it couldn't be helped, whatever that meant. But the court would soon regret releasing Yamaji. On November 17, 2005, a 27-year-old woman and her 19-year-old sister were found in a house fire. Once the fire was put out, police learned they had both been raped, then stabbed in the chest and the face with a butcher knife. Police immediately suspected Yamaji, and they brought him in. And he confessed, saying, I can't forget the feelings I felt when I killed my mother, and I wanted to see blood. He told police he left the murder weapon at a shrine several hundred meters away. Yamaji was charged with the two murders, and the prosecution accused him of committing the murders for nothing more than pleasure. But his defense argued he didn't know right from wrong, so he was ordered to undergo a psychiatric eval. His defense tried to get him off, saying he had been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and suggested he was unfit to stand trial. But the judge said that he was mentally competent and should stand trial. And he made the right call because Asperger's syndrome does not cause anyone to commit murder. Yamaji pleaded guilty and said, obviously, I will be sentenced to death. I am not afraid of death. And the judge did just that, sentenced his ass to death. The judge said, the defendant is demonically possessed with killing people. The victims were killed amid unimaginable fear and pain, and it is inevitable to hand down capital punishment. What motivated the judge? Yamaji showed no remorse. He said, had Yamaji shown remorse, he would have received a more lenient sentence. In 2009, Yamaji was executed at 25 years old. He was hanged with two other murderers. His reign of terror ended, and thank God. This was a long one, people, but a good one. My opinion, crime and psychology go together like sprinkles on cookies. And although these murders were heinous, all of these stories show anyone can commit murder. Anywhere, anytime, for any reason. And I'm out of time. If you got something out of today's episode, feel free to follow me. By now, you should know where. On Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung, or wherever you listen from. Be easy. I will be back with more stories. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves.